And please turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. If there's any older kids who would like to, there's red folders in the back of the room that have sermon outline notes. Much, much, much older kids, there's no shame in grabbing one of those if you want help following along as we look at God's Word this morning. From Matthew 26, we've been looking at the last days and nights and moments of the earthly ministry of Jesus, and today we're looking at chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord. A number of years ago, former Vice President Al Gore released a documentary called An Inconvenient Truth. Now, I don't bring that up to talk about the subject of that documentary, which was global warming or climate change or whatever it was called then. The point is the title, because he believed that what he was speaking was truth, but it was a truth that we had found to be inconvenient, and so we buried it, we rejected it, we hid it, we ignored it. As the past few years have shown all of us in our culture, the, uh, the legal trials that have been so publicized and so closely followed have shown, if nothing else, that our relationship to the truth is shaky and insecure. Two people can watch the same proceedings and come away with opposite conclusions because, as we've learned, what people believe is very profoundly affected by what we want to believe. So when Jesus is put on trial, how do his accusers respond to the truth about him? Well, we see that they act out what has been the inclination of every human heart since Adam which is to reject the truth in favor of what we want. So how do we respond to the inconvenient and yet nonetheless true claims of Jesus upon our lives? And more importantly, how does the truth respond to us? The first thing we see in this account is that his accusers, they don't want the truth. They don't want the truth. It's rather generous to call these proceedings a trial. 
because as many have pointed out, it doesn't follow the, the pattern of any trial that we would recognize. The format is unusual, and it doesn't conform to what a trial should be. Not just I'm not saying that just from our own 21st century Western American standards of jurisprudence. Uh, even what we know of the trials of Jesus' day, this doesn't fit. Something is very off about it, and that shouldn't surprise us, because it's clear that these people aren't interested Injustice. They didn't want the truth. Look at verse 59. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking, they were actively seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. If you're interested in finding out what actually happened, you don't go looking for someone who will lie. But that's exactly what happens. They are seeking false testimony because they already have an end in mind. They have a goal, which is to put Jesus to death. They've made their judgments. They know what they want. They want Jesus dead. This trial is not about learning the truth. It's about justifying their plans and their goals. As we saw in John 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They have their own plans. They have their own priorities. In this case, their plan, their priority is preserving the stability of the Jewish nation in Rome and to avoid any conflict with the Roman Empire. And Jesus threatened those priorities, so they moved to protect what was most important to them. When you put it in those terms, I think it's clear that we are no different We have the same tendencies. The psalmist in Psalm 14 says that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any whose priority is to seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. We, each of us, are seeking after other things. There is no one seeking first after God. There are things that we want to work for things we're willing to sacrifice for, things we want to invest in, and when those things become of greater importance to us than God's will, then we've lost all interest in pursuing the truth in Him. Don't overlook, in this case, that it was the highly religious people of His day who did this. Verse 57, the scribes and the elders. Verse 59, the chief priests and the whole council. Being serious about God does not make you immune to the problem of closing your ears to what he says. Even good, reformed, Presbyterian men and women can have noble goals and priorities that become more important to them than God's truth is. When the commands of God conflict with our politics, or when God's word doesn't line up with our traditions, when personal pride or comfort or culture determine our choices and our values instead of looking to God to determine those things, then we do not want the truth anymore. We have another priority in our hearts. As an example of this, I thought of uh, from the novel or the play or the musical or the movie, uh, Les Mis, Inspector Javert was a, a, a... highly dedicated police inspector. 
who had witnessed the main character, Jean Valjean, in prison, who was in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And Inspector Javert was committed to the idea that this man cannot be redeemed. He's a criminal, and therefore he deserves to be in jail. And yet Jean Valjean was released from prison after 19 years. And Inspector Javert made it his mission to pursue to the end Jean Valjean and to return him to prison because he was convinced that this man could not be good. And despite observing with his own eyes Despite seeing Jean Valjean, uh, by his generosity and his compassion and his faithfulness, transform an entire community, redeem lives and save others, even Inspector Javert's life himself, the inspector could not let go of his priority that this man must be imprisoned. He was not interested in the truth. He knew what he wanted to believe and he wouldn't let something so inconvenient as reality get in between him and what he wanted to see done. The Apostle John describes it in John chapter 3 this way. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That is how we respond to the truth. We don't want it because we have something else that is more important to us. We've loved our own deeds and not the word of the Lord. So how do we guard against this tendency in our lives? Well, one of the ways we guard against it, I would suggest, is to approach God's Word rightly. Many of us read God's Word. I hope you all do. But there's a way to read it that is not edifying, that is not helpful, and is actually destructive. Too many times we can come to the Bible trying to find verses and phrases and words and stories that will justify what we already want to believe, that will prop up our convictions we stick with the parts we like and that, that conform to our expectations and we neglect the parts that would challenge us and correct us. Instead, when we read God's Word, we should be humble and we should be ready to change what we believe and change what we do in light of it. We should show that we're genuinely interested in hearing the truth from God and not just finding evidence to continue as we are. And definitely not just trying to fit Jesus into what we already believe. Because if we are not interested in the truth, if we cannot approach God and His Word in that way, then we won't accept the truth when we see it. And that's the second thing we see. Even though these accusers didn't want the truth, they still get it. They sought out false witnesses. But when given the chance to speak, Jesus was a true and faithful witness they received a truth they didn't want, and how do they respond? They don't accept it. We saw they began by not wanting the truth, and now they don't accept the truth. Verse 63, the high priest said to him, I adjure you, and that's a, a legal command, a charge under oath, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. No more parables, Jesus. No more beating around the bush. No more cleverly veiled Old Testament allusions and quotations. Just answer the question, are you or are you not the Christ? When Jesus gives his answer, saying, yes, you've said so. In verses 65 and 66, the high priest tears his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What's your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. 
Blasphemy, because in, in claiming or, or taking upon himself this uh, title of Christ or Messiah, he's claiming divine power, he's making himself uh, on par with God. And as we're going to see in a little bit, he even quotes a passage where it, it implies and even states that the Son of Man, whom Jesus said he was the Son of Man, would receive authority over all the nations. It was blasphemy. Now, it was blasphemy if it's not true. Now, the, the chief priests, the, uh, the, the Pharisees, the elders, the scribes, they believed that God had promised a Messiah. God had promised a deliverer. He had promised a, a son of David who would come and, and claim not only the throne, but also redeem and rescue God's people and deliver them. So eventually, someone was going to claim to be the Christ and be right. But they had already assumed that that could not be Jesus. If they had really been interested in the answer to his question, they would have pursued it with questions of their own. But they're not. They couldn't accept the truth. So when confronted with a truth that they cannot accept, what do they do? They try to get rid of it. They condemn him to death. They try to silence him with death, and they try to shame the truth with mockery. They try to make it look ridiculous. Verses 67 through 68, they spit in his face. They strike him. Some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, O Christ, who is it that struck you? They're teasing him, making fun of him, trying to make him look ridiculous. Because if you can make the truth look foolish, then people don't have to believe it. You can be excused for not believing foolishness. Now, that same tendency continues even today. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not that we're ignorant of it. Not that we haven't heard it. We suppress it like the little kid who's been stealing candy and eating candy when they're not supposed to and when confronted with a pile of wrappers next to them, shoves it down into the couch cushions. This has never happened to anybody that I know. You know they're, they're trying to suppress it and that's what we do with the knowledge of God. We suppress it. We try to push it out of mind and out of the way so that we can't be held accountable for it. But it's there It is evident in nature, Paul says, and in our conscience, the power of God, the existence of God, the goodness of God, the beauty of God is evident, but we suppress it. We can't accept it because then we would be held accountable for not obeying it. Reminds me of a scene in the movie Rush Hour because this naturally leads to the question of how do we respond when someone won't accept the truth? And in the movie Rush Hour, you have the story of, uh, of two police officers, one from the States and one from uh, China, trying to cooperate on a case. And when they first meet, Chris Tucker, playing the American police officer, is speaking to Jackie Chan and getting no response. So he thinks, oh, he doesn't understand me. So he does what almost every American does when they think somebody doesn't speak English. He speaks louder. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? That's what we do. When someone doesn't accept the truth of the gospel, when someone doesn't believe God's word, we just get louder. If we can just be louder than them, eventually they'll have to respond. When people reject God's word, our reaction at times is just to try to outshout them. But how should we really respond? I speak, I trust, to most of you being uh, people who have not rejected 
the Word of God or the living Word of God. But what do we do about those in our lives, our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, the people we know and care about who do reject His Word? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Is there any hope for someone who rejects and doesn't believe in God? Is there any hope for someone who cannot accept the truth and seeks to suppress it and to condemn it? and silence it, and shame it? Is there any hope? Yes, there is. Because Paul says, you know, if the God of this age has blinded their minds, if they are unable to see, here is their hope. God, who when light, such a thing as light didn't even exist, God spoke it into existence in creation in Genesis chapter 1. That same God speaks light into blinded eyes, into closed hearts, and makes us able to see and to believe. And so what is the hope for those who don't believe in God, who do not accept the truth? It is that God would open their eyes to see. If they won't accept the truth, it's because they're blinded. But God created light where there was none, and He can use that same light to open and fill dark hearts. And so the promise we count on and look forward to even though the world seems filled with lies, even though all around us would reject the truth, and cannot accept it. The promise of God is this in Habakkuk chapter 2, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a promise. That is what God has said will be the case. And so though He is mocked on trial and rejected, and though His accusers close their hearts and will not accept the truth, and though those around us and the people in our lives will not accept the truth of God and suppress it and reject it and condemn it and mock it, yet the promise is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God even as the waters cover the sea. As we confessed earlier, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And the reason that can happen is because the God who spoke light into existence speaks into hearts and brings light where there is darkness. And that is our hope. Because though people do not want the truth and do not accept the truth, in the end what we see in this story is that they do not defeat the truth. Despite all the opposition to God and His Word and His kingdom, they cannot defeat the truth. In their pursuit of false charges against Jesus, look what happens in verse 60. At last two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And it's important that there were two because at least one of the ways in which they were being faithful to, uh, to God's word here is that every matter and every accusation had to be established by at least two witnesses. You had to have two or three witnesses. And so as they're trying to bring these false witnesses forward, they don't have any, any way to substantiate these charges because one guy says this, another guy says that, another guy says that, and nobody's agreeing. But finally you get two who come forward with the same story. And the story is that Jesus said if you destroyed the temple, he'd rebuild it in three days. Promised a miracle. 
which actually is pretty much something Jesus did say. Uh, earlier, after clearing the temple of the money changers in John chapter 2, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Which sounds crazy. And rightfully could be submitted as a claim of uh, some accusation, at least of him being out of his mind. But he was misunderstood. You see, what was the temple? The temple was always... In, among God's people, the visible, physical sign and representation of the presence of God with His people. God commanded it to be built, and then he, His glory descended upon it and filled it as, as a testimony that God was with His people. But the temple was always, ever, only just a sign. And a sign points to something. The temple pointed to the actual physical presence of God with his people, the true temple, which was Jesus Christ. And so after Jesus said, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it, he went on in John chapter 2 to say, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and it still wasn't done after 46 years. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Even in the midst of his trial, in the moment, moments before being sentenced to death, Jesus' own enemies recall this statement of his, but they, they misunderstand it. They miss the point of it. That his body, the, the presence of God among men, the true temple, would not remain destroyed. They were about to condemn him to death. They were about to destroy the temple. And he reminded them, he predicted, he promised, in three days it will be raised up again. The presence of God among you will not be destroyed, though you suppress and reject the truth. Though they would silence it for a moment, they would not defeat it. But there's more. In verses 63 and 64, as the high priest adjures him by the living God to tell if you're the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus says, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is quoting Daniel. He's quoting the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, which says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus, in this moment when his conviction is certain, reveals and lets them know where all this is leading. This trial is not leading to his defeat, but to his coronation. He will not be destroyed, he will be crowned. His ministry isn't about to end, it's about to go to the next level. And that's what guides his whole demeanor in the midst of the trial. He is calm. For the most part, he is silent. He doesn't even answer his accusers. He never attacks or retaliates. He doesn't call down the woes upon the Pharisees. He doesn't speak against them. He doesn't point out their errors because he knows that nothing that happened in that moment, nothing could possibly upset the victory of God's kingdom. His enemies might be laughing at the moment, but the next time they see him, as Zechariah says, they will mourn for the one who was pierced. They will mourn because he is reigning as king. That level of confidence should filter down 
to those who are united to Christ, those who are in his kingdom. Not because we too will be coming upon the clouds and handed an everlasting dominion. But like Jesus, we can be patient and we can show grace because we know that God's kingdom will not fail. We know where this is headed. We know what the end will be and the truth is not defeated. You know, it's amazing to me how much a kid will put up with if they're promised a reward at the end. You know, that's why doctors and dentists' office have little prize boxes, at least if you go to the right doctors and dentists. You've got a little prize box at the end that you can dig in and get a gift, or if you're like my sweet little girl who can talk anybody into anything, you get two prizes at the end every time. Um, or or if, you know, if you promise them a trip to their favorite restaurant or let them pick a dessert. You know, how much will the kid put up with for a scoop of ice cream? or a little plastic dollar store toy. It's amazing how much a kid will put up with. How much more then should we, who face the glory of the kingdom of God, be willing to put up with? How much more should we be willing to endure and patiently walk through in light of that? How much calmer and gracious can we be knowing what awaits? Do we really need in every conversation and argument to be proved right? Or not so much to be proved right. More than that, I need the other person to admit that they're wrong. You know, do we really need to defend our reputation in a world that's being deceived and manipulated by the evil one? We should expect that God's people, that the church of Jesus Christ, that, that His Word will always be subject to false accusations and unjust condemnations. It shouldn't surprise us. But because we know how the story plays out, we know what's coming. Because of that, we wait. And we respond with patience and grace. We speak the truth, but we don't fret when others reject it. Because they cannot defeat the truth in the end. It's not the silence of weakness. It's the silence of strength. Two thoughts to wrap this up. Number one, we can and should take to heart Jesus' attitude and demeanor under pressure. Under these circumstances, any one of us could understandably uh, be, be expected to fight back to defend ourselves, to justify ourselves. When someone says things about you that aren't true, how concerned are we to justify ourselves, to push back at our accusers? And yet Jesus was silent. Again, not the silence of weakness, but the silence of strength. A silence that is confident in the end result. Now remember, we saw at the beginning of this passage that Peter was right outside to see how things would play out. He was out there watching it to the end. Well, look what Peter wrote about this years later in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, For to this you've been called, meaning to patient endurance under suffering. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so believer, follower of Christ, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. The truth will be victorious. God's kingdom wins in the end. Your reputation 
isn't a part of that. Your being treated fairly isn't a part of that. If you're treated unfairly during this season of sin, be patient. It's not through your arguments. It's not through your reputation. It's not through your clever memes. It's not through your witty comebacks that the kingdom is victorious. But it's through the victory of Christ. Trust yourself to Him who judges justly. Because what matters is not what your enemy thinks of you. It's not what your friends think of you. It's not what your neighbor thinks of you. It's what Him who judges justly thinks of you. And on that note, the second thought, a more important one, is that the point of all this is not, look how Jesus behaved and persevered. You can be victorious like Him. The point is not, let us all then be Jesus and endure. Because the Gospel is not about the example that Jesus sets for you. Now we've talked about that. There's value in that. Peter says that this isn't a good example for us. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not, as we like to say here, it's not the example of God for your salvation. It's not the illustration of God or inspiration of God for your salvation. The gospel is the power of God for your salvation. It makes your salvation happen. So the gospel is not about the example that Jesus set for you, but what we take from this is what He did for you. That He endured rejection and injustice because of our sin. He had to persevere because we had already failed. He had to be condemned because we rejected and condemned Him. So brothers and sisters, in this story, you are not Jesus enduring valiantly. You are the enemies of truth. He is without sin. He is fully true, but treated as a liar and a criminal. Why? As Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed, He was afflicted, and yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Because He poured out His soul to death and was murdered with the transgressors, yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We who had rejected the truth, who had prioritized everything else above it, we who had condemned the truth and sought to suppress it and shame it, He bears that sin on Himself. That's why He was silent. That's why He allowed Himself to be condemned and mocked and scorned. He does it so that we, the enemies of truth, the ones who went astray, might be brought back and made new. And so the good news is that the victory of God's kingdom doesn't rest on how well you endure under pressure. The victory of God's kingdom doesn't rest on how well you answer those who speak error. The victory of God's kingdom doesn't rest on your reputation as a Christian or the reputation of this church or of any gathering of believers. The victory of God's kingdom rests on the victory that Christ has already won we can look forward to that. You are not the one fighting the battle. You are the one who seeks refuge and finds it under the banner of the king whose kingdom prevails despite all the lies, despite all the slander, despite all the opposition. You can reject the truth all you want, but it will be victorious. That is the hope, that is the assurance that we have until the day when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, even as the waters cover the sea.
Until that day, let us wait, let us persevere, and let us look to the victory of the King. Pray with me. Our gracious Father, we who sought our kingdom and not your righteousness, we who suppressed your truth in our unrighteousness, we who, who failed to receive because our eyes and our hearts were blinded, we have received your grace in ways we did not deserve and continue under the power of your grace to be speakers and workers of truth. We praise you for your goodness to us. We praise you for the work of Christ Jesus who endured such opposition from sinful men. May we see that and not grow weary and lose heart. Teach us to be motivated by the promise that awaits that the truth of your kingdom will be victorious. May we find our hope and our joy in that. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.